Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Over 40 different times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God inspired a powerful little phrase that describes our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's simply the little phrase, one another. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God uses that phrase, one another, to describe our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to put one of those instances up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me this morning. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Just the first part of that verse, read it out loud together. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now I want you to read it again like you had an extra hour sleep last night, all right? You ready? One, two, three. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love. Let that sink in for a minute. Does that describe your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Devoted to one another in brotherly love. The word devoted to kind of help us answer the question you study it in the Greek language, it's a word that that denotes the affections of those who cherish one another as members of the same family. So in its Greek understanding, which is what the New Testament was written in, what the Bible is describing is an affection that you and I have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because we recognize that we belong to the same family. If you look the word up in the English dictionary, the word devotion means great love, admiration, or loyalty. And it's expressed by spending much time or energy on something or someone. So let me ask the question again. Does the word devotion describe your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think unfortunately, the word that best describes our relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ often at best is participation, but not devotion. As brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible says we're to love one another. And the Bible didn't just say that one time. 
As a matter of fact, as you study the New Testament, 18 different times in different forms and fashions, the Bible expresses this concept, this principle, that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are to love one another with a devoted kind of love, a kind of love that's a great love. It's an admiration. It involves investing time in that relationship and spending time and energy on those people. That's why Rick Warren said it this way. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren said that Jesus said our love for each other, not our doctrinal beliefs, is our greatest witness to the world. When we come together in love as a church family from different backgrounds, race, and social status, it is a powerful witness to the world. I mean, when the world looks at our church, for example, When you look at our church, there's a lot of diversity sitting here in our fellowship. What is it that unites us together? It's the love of Jesus Christ that we've all experienced personally as we met Jesus and were overwhelmed by his love for us. And then as Jesus begins to live his life through us and love through us, it produces a love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, well, I want to ask another question. What does it look like? To love one another with this kind of love. What does it look like to love one another? Well, if you go back to Romans 12, a couple of verses later, Paul describes what it looks like to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Look at it on the screen. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 and 16. Look what he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. This idea of being of the same mind, it means, hey, if you're feeling it, I'm feeling it. If you're walking in it, I'm walking in it. If you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. If you're weeping, I'm weeping. The word weep here is a word that means more than just shedding tears. It means to show that emotion. Let me kind of give you a summary statement, and then I'll explain where we're going with this. Look at this on the screen. In the body of Christ, love is expressed by genuine care and concern that leads to meeting the needs of of others. I want you to see that. Let's, let's just read it together, okay? Let's read it. In the body of Christ, love is expressed by genuine care and concern that leads to meeting the needs of others. Now, that changes the question, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because I think most of us, our initial reaction to that question is yes. But what we mean by that is I feel positively about them. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Sure I do. I think all these people are great. Put that statement back up there. Is it expressed by Genuine care and concern that leads to meeting the needs of others. 
Now that's a game changer when you ask the question, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's one thing to say, well, I feel positively about all these people. I think they're wonderful. I think they're great. It's something else to express that. By rejoicing when they rejoice, weeping when they weep, getting involved in their lives to the point of meeting the needs that exist in the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me me be transparent this morning. In In a growing fellowship, the principle that I'm describing is challenging. It's easier to love one another... When there are only a few of us. When there are only a few of us, it's a lot easier to love one another, to rejoice. I mean, to be honest, there's some of you in here today that are rejoicing, and some of us in the room don't even know you're rejoicing. There are some of you that are weeping, and some of us don't even know that you're weeping. So the more of us there are, the more difficult it becomes to live out this principle of loving one another. The larger we become, and that's why a lot of people, the larger a church becomes, a lot of people want to distance themselves from that church because they think, oh, it's just not a loving fellowship anymore. No, it's not that it's not a loving fellowship. It's just more challenging. It's more challenging to demonstrate that kind of love. And I think Rick Warren summarized it best when he said that as a a church that's healthy and growing, it must learn how to become larger and smaller at the same time. This is not a new American large church problem. It's the same problem they were dealing with in the early church as the church began to explode in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. Needs began to be overlooked. People began to get their feelings hurt. Some people were not being cared for like they should be. It's a problem that's existed since the church began. Because if we're going to be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture that is lost, and we're going to be bold in proclaiming the gospel, guess what? Next week there ought to be more of us than there are this week. Otherwise, we've just become a holy huddle and we've abandoned the mission that God's given us to penetrate the darkness of the world that we live in. Listen, we ought to have more next week than we have this week and more the next week than we have that week. There should be more of us next year than there is this year. Not because we're focused on growth. We have a mission that is about penetrating the lostness of this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we do that... And as we grow, we must learn how to get smaller as we get larger. Now, the primary way we do this here at Hope is through small groups. You see, when you're involved in a small group here at Hope, you know what it just became? It just became easy for you to love one another. Because this big group of people just became a few people that I'm connected with, that I'm doing life with. And at Hope, we're not a church with some small groups. We're a church of small groups. Meaning, if you're not connected in a small group, you're really not involved in the life of our fellowship. It's how we live out all of these one another's in the body of Christ. So at Hope, the primary way that we genuinely care for one another and are concerned for one another, and we love one another by meeting those needs as through the vehicle of small groups. So that's one of the ways we're trying to get smaller and larger at the same time. There's a second way we do this. It's a way that began in the early church. 
It's with a ministry that we began to launch last weekend. We're going to officially launch it this weekend. The ministry in the New Testament is called deacons. Deacons, let me put the definition back up on the screen that we unpacked last weekend, are servants set apart to meet needs in the body of Christ. You know what I love about this principle of deacons? Deacons and their work is based upon Christ's loving concern for His church. That's where deacon ministry is born. Deacon ministry is Jesus establishing in His church a group of people that are set apart to make sure that as we grow and reach people, we still live out this principle of loving one another as Christ in us loves through us. And last weekend, if you weren't here at Hope, we talked about four areas that we are setting apart deacons to make sure that we are a loving, caring fellowship for one another. I want to put those four areas back up on the screen just to remind you what we said last weekend. We're going to set deacons apart who are going to provide intensive care for those who are connected. That's people already in small groups, but there are times when a care situation is bigger than a small group can handle. So we're going to have deacons that come alongside those groups and walk with these families, these people that are hurting in these intensive care situations. Second was care and connection for the disconnected, people that aren't connected in a group yet. We're going to have deacons that will come alongside them to help get them connected in a group and meet those needs that they have. Third is care for widows. We have a biblical responsibility to come alongside of widows and care for them and love them in Christ. And then fourth is bereavement care. When people experience the death of someone in their family, as a family of faith, we want to weep with those who weep. And we want to walk with them through those Valleys that life brings into all of our lives. So we're setting aside deacons. And we said last week, and if you remember, deacons are like white blood cells in the body of Christ. Remember what a white blood cell does? A white blood cell is a part of your bloodstream that looks for bacteria or viruses. And as soon as it identifies it, man, the white blood cells rush in to eat up that virus or that bacteria before it can infect the body. That's what deacons do. Deacons are set apart as white blood cells in the body of Christ. To come alongside when somebody gets overlooked, when somebody's hurt, they can come in and before that begins to infect the body, they come in and they meet those needs and they lovingly care for those people and walk them through seeing them connected and back into restored fellowship with the body of Christ. Which means this. The minute deacons become a problem and stop solving problems... They've ceased being deacons. They may wear the label or carry their card. But the minute they start causing problems and stop solving problems, they forfeited the right to be called a deacon. Because deacons are set apart to be problem solvers. And so at Hope, we're in the process of doing this. Now, last weekend, we unpacked Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 told us what deacons do. This weekend, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we want to answer the question, what a deacon is. Talking about the character of those that we're going to set apart. 1 Timothy chapter 3, begin reading in verse number 8. 
Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you the biggest difference between the passage of Scripture we read last weekend, talking about deacons, and the passage of Scripture that I just read for you this morning. The passage of Scripture that we read last weekend was a descriptive passage of Scripture, meaning it was describing an event in the life of the early church that brought deacons into existence. The passage that I've read for you this morning is not descriptive, it is prescriptive. Meaning Paul is now writing to young Timothy, this pastor, and he's prescribing to him how, as the church, you set apart these men and women of God to serve in this particular function. And he's teaching him about the character and the quality of people that they should be. So that's what I want us to unpack this morning with three questions. Here's the first one. Who can be a deacon? Who can be a deacon? I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to answer this question, who? John MacArthur has an interesting statement about it. He says this, in a general sense of the term, all Christians are deacons. For all are to be actually serving Christ and His church. If that makes sense, say amen. I mean, in one sense, we defined a deacon as somebody set apart to meet needs within the body of Christ. Uh, Isn't that all of us? Hadn't we all been called of the Lord to use our gifts and service in the body of Christ? And the answer to that is yes, we all have been. But what Paul is describing here in 1 Timothy is a unique office within the church that has been set apart in a unique way. And here's really the two uniquenesses about it. Number one, it's to meet a specific need. The church had identified a specific need. We as a fellowship have identified these four things that I showed you where we realize that we're lacking in our loving one another in these areas. And so we're setting these men and women apart to meet a specific need. It's not a general call. It's a very specific setting them apart. Secondly, what makes this unique is because of what's said here in this text of Scripture, deacons are to model Christ-like service for everyone else. Yes, just like all of us, deacons are to use their gifts to serve, but they are to provide an example. Here's what I'm saying. The life of every deacon should inspire others in the body of Christ to more desire to serve Jesus and meet needs within the body. So they're set apart to meet a specific need, but also they become models and examples of service that all of us can be impacted by. So so who can be set apart to do this? Well, let me simply answer it with a statement. Men or women 
who are old enough to have their own household. Because of what the scripture teaches here, and I'm going to unpack it in a moment, but who can be a deacon? Men or women who are old enough to have their own household. Now, in saying that, I understand that some of you maybe come from a background where you were taught that only men could be deacons like the office of elder. But, but I believe that 1 Timothy chapter 3 teaches us very clearly that this is a role that can be fulfilled by men or women in the body of Christ. Now, not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this because for the vast majority of you, you agree with that statement and have no problem with it. So I want to give you just a few quick statements from Scripture. For those of you that maybe that's not your background or tradition, I want to challenge you to think about some things, and here they are. Six reasons why I believe both men and women can be deacons. Number one, what the Scripture says. The Bible here in some translations in verse 11 translates that as their wives. The problem with that is the word theirs not in the Greek text. It's implied by translators based on their interpretation of what this says, but it's not in the Greek language. Number two, why would there be qualifications listed here for deacons' wives but not for elders' wives? He didn't mention anything about wives when talking about elders in the first seven verses of this passage of Scripture. Number three, the term likewise. In verse 8, when he begins to talk about deacons, he says likewise. In verse 11, when he begins to talk about women deacons, he says likewise again. It's almost like he's saying there are three distinct groups. There's elders, likewise men deacons, likewise women deacons. Number four, the qualifications for both men and women are almost parallel. There's a couple of distinctions, but if you look at verse 8 and verse 11, they both start with dignified, then they talk about how you use your mouth, and they talk about how you deal with uh, things that are in the world. All of those things are almost parallel in how he describes them. Number 5, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he says, I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a, and the Greek word is, diakonos. Now, most translations say servant. But it's the same word that's used here for the word deacon. And as a matter of fact, 16 other times in his writings, Paul mentions women who played a significant role in the growth and development of the early church. I believe many of them were serving in the function of deacon. And number six, practically it makes sense because there are needs within the body of Christ sometimes that are gender specific. There needs to be a man or a woman that's set apart to meet those needs. So for all of those reasons at Hope, our conviction is that both men and women who are old enough to have their own household can serve in this office of deacon. Now, if that is problematic for you, one of our pastors will be happy to have a conversation with you offline if you'd like to do that, all right? Tom, Travis, Brian, Teddy, any one of them. Would love to have that conversation. No, I'm just kidding. But that's who can be a deacon. Men and women who are old enough to have their own household. So then let's ask a second question. What character qualities should a deacon possess? That's really what this passage is about. The character qualities that these men and women of God should possess. Now, before I unpack them, let me remind you of something. And this will help all of us lean into, because some of you have already begun to check out, well, I'm not going to be a deacon, so I don't even need to listen to this. Listen, what I'm about to describe is what the life of every follower of Jesus should look like. So don't sit back and go, whoa, I'm glad I'm not a deacon and don't have to live up to that standard. That's not what he's saying here. Nor, even if you go and look at the, the qualifications for elders or pastors, 
He's not describing one set for this, this group and then everybody else gets to live. No, he's describing what genuine, authentic Christ-likeness is supposed to look like. He's describing what every follower of Jesus should strive for. But what he's emphasizing is before you set somebody apart to fulfill this office, you must examine their lives and be certain that they are demonstrating these qualities because they're examples to others in the body of Christ. They've been set apart as such, and their lives must exemplify Christ in them, living through them. Does that make sense? So these three things that I'm about to give you, they're for all of us. If you got that, say amen. Amen. Say, I get it. You're talking to me, preacher. Okay, I just want to be sure we're on the same page. What I want to do is try to summarize verses 8 through 13 with three distinct life marks. Here's the first one. Their walk. And I define that as Christ in them, living through them in a way that is attractive to those around them. Before we set somebody apart, and let me tell you why this is important, you're about to do this. You're about, as a fellowship, to help us set apart some men and women of God to serve in this way in our church. So you need to know this stuff. We don't need to just live this. We need to know it because we're about to select some people. We need to select some people who we so see Christ in them, living through them, that it is attractive to us around them. He begins by using both for men and women in verse 8 and in verse 11. The first qualification is that they are dignified. Now, we think of the word dignified and we think of somebody with their nose stuck up in the air, right? Somebody that drinks tea with their pinky sticking out, right? They're dignified. But, But that's not the Greek word for dignified here. The word dignified is a word that describes all inspiring qualities that invite and attract others. It means that when you see this person's life, you respect the way that they live. You admire Christ in them. And and the way that they follow Jesus, it creates in you and in me a greater desire to follow Jesus. When we see them, we go, you know what, man? I want to follow Jesus like they follow Jesus. That's dignified. It's an awe-inspiring quality in them that is Christ in them that attracts others and invites them in. There are people that we see Christ in them And because of that, we are inspired to love Jesus more. It's not somebody that just always has the loudest mouth or been here the longest. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. It's not somebody who always has got to get their two cents in. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about first somebody that when we see them, I want to love Jesus more because I'm around them. I'm attracted to Jesus in them. That's dignified. I want to love Jesus more because of the way they love Jesus. 
I want to pursue Christ more. And then Paul uses some other words to describe and expound on this idea of being dignified. He says they're to be tested here in verse number 10. The word tested means to examine. It's the idea of you, you watch them. They, they don't need to be the, they don't need to just been at the church for a couple of weeks. We need to have watched them for a period of time so that we can see in them Christ living through them. We've seen them on their good days and on their bad days. And even on their bad days, let me tell you what I see. I see Christ in them. It's interesting, this idea of testing, it's a present tense verb here. It means that it's not once they pass the test, you quit watching. No, deacons live being tested. They're always to be examined uses the word beyond reproach here in verse 10. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. It's a compound word. The two words that come to make it is the word without and the word to accuse. You put it together, it means without accusation. Here's what it means. There's nothing in their lives where you can point a finger. Now, I'm not talking here about perfect people. What I am talking about is blameless people. It means that even when they've done wrong, they've taken the necessary steps to make it right. None of us are perfect. So if we're waiting until we find some perfect men and women of God to set them apart as deacons, guess what? We'll never have them. But what we can look for are men and women of God who are blameless. Meaning that you can't point a finger of accusation into their lives because it just won't stick. Even when they've been wrong, they've done what they need to to make it right. They're beyond reproach. So think about that in our spiritual lives. Don't think about deacons for a second. Think about you and me. As a follower of Jesus, are you blameless? I'm to so live my life in pursuit of Christ that nobody can point a finger of accusation in my life and have any leg to stand on. You see what this does? It moves it away from the question, well, is this right or is this wrong? That's not the the issue. Listen, we need to do the right thing, but we need to do the right thing in such a right way that it moves us from that line to being completely blameless. I'm blameless. I'm above reproach in that situation. Another question to think about. Does the way you follow Jesus invite and attract others to follow Jesus? If all somebody did was watch you, are they going to want to love Jesus more? I'm not talking about watch you at church. I'm talking about watch you in your neighborhood. Watch you at your job. Watch you in how you relate to your wife or your kids or your husband, your grandchildren. Do others see you and feel inspired to love Jesus more? The first qualification is their walk. Christ in them, living through them in a way that is attractive to those around them. Let me give you the second one. Their words. Christ in them evidenced in the way 
they speak to those around them. Christ in them, evidenced in the way that they speak to those around them. Twice here, Paul mentions to Timothy some characteristics involving their mouths or their words. He says, first of all, in verse 8, they're not to be double-tongued. It's a word that means twice spoken. It means two-faced, deceitful with one's words. Then he, down in verse 11, says they're not to be malicious gossips. It's interesting, the word malicious gossip is the word diabolos. That ought to ring a little bit of a bell. That's where we get our name for Satan himself, the devil, who's an accuser of the brethren. That's where that comes from. A malicious gossip is someone who falsely accuses and divides people. It's a slanderer. If you take those two phrases together, let me give you three expressions of what this looks like. This is saying we're not to be the kind of people who say one thing to one person and something else to somebody else. It means that we're not to be the kind of people who say one thing and then do something else. It means we're not to be the kind of people who say something at the expense of someone else. With our words, people should see Christ in us, living through us. There's a pastor in the Caribbean named Tabidi Anriobile. Listen to what he says. He says, deacons must say, or excuse me, deacons must Say what they mean. I don't think that's written right. (laughs) Eliminate the first say. Deacons must mean what they say and say what they mean. They must avoid the sin of flattery and speak the truth in love. It's a great statement. Mean what they say. Say what they mean. Speak the truth in love. Paul described this characteristic in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Listen to what Paul said. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, in Ephesians 4, Paul is not describing deacons. He's describing us as the body of Christ. Now, what he's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that we just need to examine and make sure that these people are living this way. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that builds up, that encourages, that edifies, that adds to, that breathes life into other people. So here's the question to think about as a follower of Jesus. As a Jesus follower, do I keep my word? Let me ask you something. Do you keep your word? Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say something, can people count on it? We as followers of Jesus Christ should be people of our word. If we say something, even to our own cost, let us be true to what we said. Do I keep my word? Here's another question. Do I gossip about other people? 
Let's just make it real specific. In the last seven days, have you gossiped about other people? Have you slandered their character by saying things about them? And here's what happens oftentimes. We try to tear somebody else down to make ourselves feel better and look good. Do I speak unkindly about people when they're not present? Is the reputation of another safe in my hands? Deacons are to be people, men and women, whose walk and whose words line up with this passage of Scripture. Here's the third word. It's the word wisdom. Christ in them, evidenced in the way they make daily decisions. Look at those three things. Their walk, their words, their wisdom. Christ in them, evidenced in the way that they make daily decisions. Now what Paul does next in this passage of Scripture is he mentions three specific areas in our everyday lives, three specific areas surrounding situations that we all face. He mentions the word alcohol. He mentions the area of money. And he mentions the area of family. All three of these. And let me tell you what Paul is implying. Others should be able to look at your life and my life in those areas. Because I know when you talk about alcohol, when you talk about money, when you talk about family, there's as many convictions in this room as there are people about where the lines are on some of those issues. Here's what Paul is saying clearly. Others should be able to look at your life and my life as it pertains to alcohol, money management, and family relationships and see the wisdom of God and how we make decisions concerning those areas. Others should be able to look at us and see a different approach towards the things in this world. We can all have different convictions on some things. We can all draw the lines a little bit differently. But here's the summary statement. All of us should manifest in our lives the wisdom of God as it pertains to how we handle those things. And here's what he's saying. If somebody's careless in their approach to one of those things, you do not need to set them apart as an example for others to look to and follow. that makes sense, say amen. Amen. Paul takes it a step further in verse 9. Look what he says. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The word conscience is a word that means the testimony of the Spirit in our heart concerning obedience to God's Word. So here's what he's saying. Not only should I live my life in such a way that nobody else can point a finger of blame from the outside... I should live my life with such integrity and wisdom that even my own conscience from the inside is not pointing a finger into my own life. Am I so demonstrating the life of Christ in me, living through me, that even my conscience before God is clean? Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. When we do sin, we get it right with God. We confess it. We drag it out in the light. Clear conscience. He uses words like temperate, which means self-controlled in verse 11. Faithful in, listen to this, all things. 
Here's what he's saying. I'm to be found faithful to God's word in every area of my life. Some pretty heavy stuff. Let me ask you some questions. As a Jesus follower, do my daily decisions reflect the wisdom of God? I want you to think about that. And specifically in the areas that he mentions. Alcohol, money management, and family. Does your daily life demonstrate? Would others look at you and go, you know, I may not agree with all his convictions, but man, there's a lot of wisdom in how he approaches those things. There's a lot of wisdom in how she demonstrates her life in those areas. That's where we should all be. Again, this is not just for a select few. This is all of us. Our walk, Christ in them, living through them, in a way that's attractive to those around them. Our words, Christ in them, evidenced in the way that they speak to those around them. Our wisdom, Christ in us, evidenced by the way we daily make decisions. That should be all of us. But here's what Paul's saying specifically. If we're going to set aside some people to serve as deacons in our fellowship, men and women of God, they must meet these criteria. Because they're going to be examples for others to look at. So here's what we did as a church. Our pastors in council and conversation with our stewardship team based on these verses and Acts chapter 6 have written and established a list of qualifications for deacons who are going to serve at Hope. I want to put them up on the screen. Here they are. Godliness. Possessing the godly character of a servant leader. Faithfulness. Active in the life of our church for at least one year. Service, actively using spiritual gifts and service at Hope. Community, connected in any small group at Hope Church. Humility, demonstrated Christ-like humility teachability by being currently involved in or having completed shepherd training. Generosity, regularly and proportionately gives through Hope Church as an investment of God's kingdom. And finally, compassion. Possessing the spiritual gift of mercy to come alongside of those in need. Based on Acts 6, 1 Timothy, if you take this list, you can find it over and over again in everything that we've talked about. Their walk, their words, their wisdom. Those principles from last weekend that we talked about, full of the Spirit. Possessing wisdom. followed by others, good reputation, all of those things are summed up in these qualifications that we've set aside for those who are going to serve at Hope. I want you to have a minute to kind of ponder those things. If you see all those and think we've done at least as good as we can to summarize what the Scripture says, would you just say amen? Let me ask the final question, and we're done this morning. How are we at Hope going to select deacons? Because that's the next part of this. How are we going to do this? Well, we're not a church with groups. We're a church of small groups. 
for this reason, we're going to take all of our deacon nominations through our small groups. This week, your small group leaders received an email where I explained to them how we're going to accept all nominations for deacons through our small groups. We believe that's the lifeblood of our fellowship here at Hope. It's who we are. It's where our church is really the church. So all of our deacon nominations are going to happen through our small groups. And here's the fourfold process that we're asking all of you to walk with us in. Number one, pray. I'm asking you to take what we've taught the last two weekends and get before the Lord and ask God whom he might lay on your heart. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. We don't need our best thinking. We need the will of God. Amen? We need God to speak to us and through us as we pursue him. So number one, we're going to pray. Number two, beginning today, November 1st, and running through November 22nd, that's three weeks, we're asking you to submit the names through small groups of those that you would love for us to consider serving in this role of deacon. Now remember, again, men or women old enough to have their own household. And here's the way we'd like to ask you to submit these names. Because we believe the ministry of deacon and the care that they're going to provide is, um, is so intense at times, we're asking you to either submit names as a husband and wife couple or a single adult man or a single uh, adult woman that are, that are unmarried. Single adult male, single adult female, or a husband and wife team. So that's the way you can submit, husband and wife team, or an unmarried man, unmarried woman. Any of those can serve as deacons in the life of our fellowship. So through your small group, now it doesn't have to be somebody in your small group. That's just the way you're going to bring the name. Maybe it's just somebody that you know through serving in another ministry. They don't have to be in your small group. They don't have to be the small group leader. They could be, but don't have to be. But you feel led to nominate them to serve in the role of deacon. So you'll submit them between now and November 22nd. Then thirdly, the pastors will examine them. We'll do that via an interview that we'll have with them. And then in counsel with the stewardship team, out of the names that are submitted, we'll be selecting some men and women of God to serve as deacons. And then on January the 31st, as a part of our service that day, we're going to have a moment where we bring up these men and women of God and we lay hands on them and we pray and set them apart to be the first wave of deacons here at Hope. So that's the fourfold process. Pray with us. Submit names through your groups. Pastors and the stewardship team are going to counsel together and examine these people. And then on January the 31st, we're going to set them apart. Now, Again, because of the nature of the ministry of deacon, that's caring for people, it's loving one another, it's allowing Christ in us to love through us, because it can be an intense ministry at times, a uh, couple of things we're going to do here at Hope that are going to be unique, maybe to a background that you've had. Number one, people are going to serve for three-year terms. And at the end of three years, they would rotate off for at least one year with a possibility of coming back on, depending on where we are in the life of our church and the needs that exist at that time. But we just feel like people serving and then getting a break from service is a very healthy rhythm in the New Testament. So, three-year term. Now, for the first wave, we're going to establish some as three years, some as four years, some as five years. Otherwise, three years from now, we lose everybody at once. 
and we don't want to do that, okay? So the first wave will be three-year, four-year, and five-year, and then we'll begin that, that year of rotation after that. Is the process clear? Makes sense. Let me give one final disclaimer. This is a new process at Hope. We've never had this before. Here's what that means. We've done the best we can to be thorough. But we've built a car that we've never driven. So once we pull it out of the driveway, we may have to tweak some things, okay? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Be patient and flexible with us as we do. Don't dig your heels in on a point of the process, all right? That's not what this is about. This is about loving one another, using the office that Jesus set aside to help us become a more loving, caring fellowship. There are going to be some things as we get into it, we go, oh, we didn't think of that. Now, you need to know we've done the best we can. We've spent months. We took 15 churches across the country that we respect and follow and love their ministries, and we asked all of them the same 20 questions and had them give us information about deacon ministries, and we've provide, uh, put together executive summaries on it. So we have done a wealth of research and information to try to make sure we're as clear as we can, but it's still a car we hadn't driven yet. So we're going to pull it out of the driveway and go, hmm, we need to tighten that bolt. So there are going to be some things that we need to tweak along the way. We're asking you to be patient with us. Now, I know over these two weekends, we've, we've talked a lot about a new ministry thing in the life of our church. But here's what I want you to hear me say. I really believe what we've talked about the last two weekends is going to help us become larger and smaller at the same time. We're going to more demonstrate being devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're going to make sure there's some people that don't get overlooked. We're going to do everything we can to allow Christ in us to love through us as brothers and sisters in Christ and see us meet the needs of one another. Because before we are anything, we are the family of God. And as family, we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we want to weep with those who weep.